Somebody pray for us. Andy? Amen. Um, hey, Blaze, go pull that door closed. All right, somebody want to read 1 Peter 3.15 for us, just to grease the skids? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Amen. And somebody read our, uh, our, our theme quote or whatever for the class? Brilliant. Amen. Thank you, Dale. Um, all right, so last week, real fast, uh, in, in fairly succinct order, what was, what was the implication of the, the elephant and the blind man? The blind men. Yeah, there was they, there was still a sovereign king that was that was had a transcendent perspective there, and and was able to um, to help all of them see, um, which you know we we kind of have that kind of thing going on for us within Christianity. All right, so but what what the blind men were wrestling with was was the idea of, of pluralism. So how should a Christian respond to pluralism? Did all paths lead to God or? Something to that effect. You've got a you got a list of those words, all the isms I gave you a list of last week. But but how should we respond to pluralism? <laughs> all right, great. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna accept that answer. <laughs> that is what the book is training you on. So well played. All right, and now uh, we talked a little bit about um, about pragmatism. Um, and, and, you know, basically it, it, trying to leave your belief systems or your values outside or, or you know, in, in, the, in the closet or whatever when you come to the public square uh, because everybody gets tired of fussing and arguing over religion. And so, you know, they say just leave that out and, and let's see if we can't build some unity around what works. Um, what, what's the issue with that? Why does that, why does that not actually you know, provide the, the unity that it, it um, suggests that it can? A pragmatic approach. Everybody has their own opinion based in selfishness oftentimes. Yep. It also, it also doesn't work uh, based on a Christian worldview. How come? Because you're being asked to check your... Uh, faith at the door, and your faith tells you that that's not what you need to do. Yeah, all of those things are, are, are right. Uh, what we were what we were pressing on, though, was um, that sense of oughtness, right? Your sense of oughtness is going to be based on on how what you believe is the purpose for something, 
right? That, that's going to that's gonna inform the way you think it should work. So we were using marriage laws as an example, right? If, if you believe that marriage is for uh, procreation and, and rearing children for the enrichment of society, well then you might make divorce laws fairly difficult. But if you feel like um, a marriage is just for companionship and you know these kinds of things as, as an adult, well then the moment that that's not a convenient arrangement for you, it should be easy for you to get out. You want to make those divorce laws fairly accessible. So your, your sense of oughtness is going to be rooted in um, the purpose of what you think a, a given thing is for, whether it's an institution or, or a rule or... Anyhow, so because of that, you can't leave your values or your beliefs outside and then come and, and, and rally around or, or build unity around what works because, well, that's what we just articulated. You know, works to what end or what, you know, by what means to accomplish that. That's where the, that's where the disagreements come in. So, all right, that was what we were touching on last week. So, this week, oh, somebody had asked me to bring more syllabus. I did. Um, remember, they are a work in progress. You know, I had the ideal thing mapped out, and then you start settling into reality, and you're like, yeah, we're not going to be able to cover that. We maybe will cover this later. Uh, so it's kind of being edited as we go, but for where we are right now, uh, the copy that's available is, um, is over there. And... Um, you know, I was putting the pressure on if you're going for credit. Uh, today, the first reading assignment was due. That's true, but at the same time, if you didn't get to it, or you forgot, or whatever, you're at church, so there's grace here. Um, so as long as you have those things done by the end, um, fine. But but I want to I want to keep that bar up there for you. We take uh, checks of uh, cash. Yeah, we do accept bribes. Yep. Huh? Uh, chocolate. Uh, nope, chocolate though. If you got chocolate shoes, that'll be fine. But. Yeah. All right. So, evil and suffering. The the problem from evil is is kind of what we're going to discuss today. Um, so how? How could a good God allow suffering? How would you, re all right, how would you respond to, um, okay, here, I, I just don't quote, I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists, said Hillary, an undergrad English major. God allows terrible suffering in the world, so he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. This isn't a philosophical issue to me, added Rob, Hillary's boyfriend. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not. But if he does, he can't be trusted. How would you respond to that? What comes to mind or what comes to heart? Oh, sorry. Don't lose your thought. No, no, go ahead. You're fine. It's like double dutch. It's like double dutch. It just you we get the, and then you just jump in. So you're fine. Go. I, I guess if they will, if they're a, a struggling Christian, I would take them back to Genesis. Okay. What would you show them there? How the fall makes sense and how man is responsible for the evil in their heart and 
by their disobedience. And God um, doesn't, he didn't make robots. He gave, gave man free choice. Mm -hmm. And we chose to sin. And unfortunately, um, that includes horrible suffering that's coming to the world. But it's, it's not God's fault. It's man's fault. And to me, that proves that that sin is real and that um, how much it proves how much God hates sin when he sees this and it breaks his heart as much as it breaks yours yeah. but there is an avenue to repentance and forgiveness Amen, thank you for sharing that because I consciously edited out free will because it was like well we can just do a whole class on that so I like I either you know yeah. don't open the can of worms or like you open it all the way what were you going to say yeah. John? Did God really say? Yeah. Right, and we were also studying last week how to defend against the Colombo tactic when it's used against you, Darren. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this, this makes me think, you know, when you're talking to somebody who's not a follower of the Jesus of the Bible, you're, you're, you're looking at back to definitions. What do you mean by that? What is good? What is suffering? How do you differentiate the two? Does someone deserve something? Does someone not deserve something? You get, I think you get into a much bigger argument or discussion as to what these terms mean to you and if, if you can't really define, what are you using to define those terms as your baseline? What is your foundation? Amen. A lot of times in this conversation it comes back down to child abuse worldwide. Things that happen that are evil to children that could be viewed as innocent and they're just the victims of crime. Yep. I think that's, that's a pretty solid platform. Tying into what Julie was saying, sin's real. Um, yeah, and, and uh, uh, Darren, also, um, you know, all the more sometimes when you're talking to followers of other uh, religions, you know, like you talk to a Mormon, and they're going to use a lot of the same language. But when they say grace, it means something dramatically different than when you say grace. And without establishing those terms and, and creating that, those boundaries and that framework, um, you sometimes can think you're having a, a conversation and you're not. You're, you're talking right past one another. So, you know, identifying terms and clarifying them, et cetera, is extremely important. Um, all right, so there, there's a handout available. If you don't have one, it's, it's over there. Um, but, but I think in there I left the uh, formulating the argument. So, they all gone? Oh, so last week nobody was here. I know. Just remind me I'm supposed to listen to you. Blaze always says, never doubt the blaze, and I just want to never doubt the blaze. Like, what, boy? All right, so uh, God would not allow evil and suffering in the world. And as Julie and, and Daniel were just saying, there is observable evil and suffering in the world. Thus, there is no God. All right, that's what we're up against. And on the surface, that kind of actually seems pretty succinct, pretty tidy. I mean, in terms of a, a logical flow, ooh, okay. So 
the presence of evil and suffering in the world can't be denied, right? We were talking about exclusivity and that being a big beef for some people. Like, you really think you've got the only path to God? That's the only true religion? Who do you think you are? Like, the exclusivity of Christianity bugs a lot of people. But, but for others, it's, it's the presence of evil and suffering in the world. Some find unjust suffering to be a philosophical problem, calling into question the very existence of God. And for others, it's just a really personal, in, intensely personal issue. Um, some don't care about you know, the abstract question of, of whether God exists or, or not. They, they simply say, you know, like the boyfriend in the, in the excerpt I was reading, they refuse to trust or believe in a God who allows history and life to proceed in the manner that it has, which is rough. Go ahead. What I find interesting is that people are so e eager and uh, willing to discount that there's no God, but they never really, really bring up the fact that there's Satan. So there's the evil one who is very active um, in trying to destroy us, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amen. I was asked the question, so why is there evil? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. And it, it, it really cuts to the heart of it. Go ahead. Well, I was saying, just commenting on how do you define evil? Because you can, you, you can combat that a bit with them saying, I don't, like, I don't want to believe in a God who can do that. I don't want to believe the Holocaust happened. That doesn't change anything about what happened. Yeah, I don't want to believe traffic is real. But, man, I tell you what, them beliefs don't get me real far when I'm driving over to Portland. Um, it, the so so even convictions you know sincere beliefs etc it, it doesn't that doesn't necessarily have any bearing on reality is, is the point there you guys you guys are absolutely right um, and and you know as Julie was saying evil's real I mean slavery rape sex trafficking natural disasters famine cancer etc but but what are some examples of good things Sunshine. Food tastes delicious. Unless you're a vampire, right? There's lovely people. People who love you. Yeah. There's a Pacific Northwest. There is a Pacific Northwest. Amen. Preach. Preach. God's country. All of those things. Um, and I was coming up with a list, and then what kind of struck me was, uh, you know, was Galatians 5 and like the best things in life. Are, are not are not material or, or physical at all you know it, it, it just it occurred to me or I was convicted you know love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such thing there is no law right they're they're inherently good and we all know it we all want even the, the worst people in the world to some degree want to aspire to some of those things so to James's point what is evil exactly what is it Mm. Amen. It's the absence of good. Evil isn't a thing in and of itself that should be thought of as existing in opposition to good. You know, uh, like opposing forces. It, it, it's, it's, it's rather revealed in the absence of God's goodness. So darkness isn't a thing, right? It's just the absence of something else, light, okay? We don't measure darkness, you don't measure how dark it is. You measure how much light is there. We measure light. Cold isn't a thing. It's the absence of something else. It's the absence of heat, right? We don't measure cold. We can tell how cold it is by measuring the heat. 
It's the heat that you're measuring. But the absence of the heat is where the cold comes from. So evil is the absence of good. Thus, there isn't a battle between good and evil. You know, and that's like fundamental to our being as humans is the concept of good versus evil. Every culture, almost every movie, every era has held to some version of that struggle, right? But the definition of the terms good and evil may vary wildly depending on the, the opinions or, or, you know, on, on how they interact with one another, but, but still belief in some difference between that which is good and that which is evil is pervasive in, in all of mankind. So when all options and ideas are compared, only the Bible provides perspective on good and evil that is, that is fully coherent and, and fully livable. Um, jot this down. I don't know if I left it in the handout, but, but Psalm 25, 6 through 15. You may need to, you may need to meditate on that for, for a while. It may, it may just jump up like a, jump out like a pop-up book for you, but, but, but think about, read those verses and, and just, and, and read them through the lens of, uh, of this idea of, of good and, and evil and what are those, those things. But, but good and evil are, are definitely objectively distinct. Go ahead. Psalm 25. Mm. I'm sorry, 6 through 15. And if you come up with a, another one or a better one or whatever, bring that back and, and share it. Uh, but, but good and evil are objectively distinct. So discern, discerning between good and evil is, is possible only in reference to a, to a single, immutable, unchanging standard, which is the perfect nature of God. God is not subject to morality. But, but why? Why is God not subject to morality? Yeah, he's the benchmark of it. He's the source of it. He's not accountable to it. He is it. So, nor is morality subject to change since God's perfect nature is eternal. Um, it, it's unchanging. It, you know, when we say eternal, we don't mean a long, long time. We mean outside of time, outside of space and time. You know, space and time are part of God's creation, and, and God is separate and distinct from his creation. Uh, he's the creator. So, <clears throat> anyways, morality isn't subject uh, to change since, 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 well, God doesn't change. Um, all right, so has anybody ever heard of uh, Euthyphro's Dilemma? Oh, my bad. Thank you, sir. I can't, I can't think if I can't grab my waddle, though. That's how I think. Um, all right, so it's, a, it, it's, it's Plato's deal, and, and it's, a, it's a Socratic dialogue about, about goodness. So anyways, the, the, the characters, if you will, or whatever, aren't necessarily real, but, but you know, uh, he, he's trying to teach a, a real lesson here, or ask real questions. So it, it goes something like this. Is something good because God says it is good? Or does God say something is good because it's good? He says it's good because it's good? Anybody agree or disagree? God made it good, so he declared it good? Okay. You like that one? Alright, so does that question... Does, does that question... Is there a problem in that dilemma for the Christian? Is something good because God says it's good, or does God say it's good because it is? Is that a, is that a problem? The question is an objective reality, but outside of God. Say that louder. The, the question is an 
exist without God's commenting on it? Or is, this, is God the source of all things, including good? And as a result of that, is God the source of all things evil? Mm-hmm. And find yourself in a position you don't want to be in. Yeah. Um, so if a thing is good simply because God says it is, then it would seem that God could say anything was good, and it would be. But what if that, you know, were things like rape and murder? We, we all know intuitively, instinctively, that that isn't good. Right? So even if God says it's good, which he doesn't, I'm not suggesting that, but I'm saying that if we opt for that option, if we, if we take that route, it, it, it leaves us kind of in a, in a tough spot. We don't want a morality based on God's arbitrary declarations. So it would seem like that's not a great choice for the Christian. But, but on the other side, if, if God is simply reporting the thing's goodness then he's no longer the standard for goodness and it, it seems to be, at, you know, he seems to be at the mercy of some outside standard that he's somehow subjected or, or to that standard. So we don't, we don't want there to be a standard above God or, or outside of God that he must bow down to. So that response doesn't seem real attractive for us either. So here's this dilemma. We got these two horns and we're kind of stuck on them. Like, you know, we can, we can sort of reason our way out of one, but then we find ourselves stuck in another trap. Go ahead, Candace. I saw them gears turning. But our, our good is not Shakespeare, so our definition of good is not Shakespeare. I mean, if you're creating something that's good, that's might be different than a piece of that invention. They might see that, well, this is not good for me, this isn't good for the situation, but they don't see the big picture. I mean, God called... The back, to, back to the person with a transcendent view. Right, God, God in the Old Testament called peoples to be wiped out. Like, there was murder, there was death, there was killing, and it was good that that whole group would be killed off. And when people didn't obey what God said to do, then there were problems. So our definition of good is not necessarily his definition of good. So how we look at the end goal versus what we see in our little world doesn't match up with his. Yeah, and, and like to your point, because we don't have that transcendence, right? Any movie you're watching, any book you're reading, if you were to tap that character on the shoulder right then in the moment and say, hey, do you know where you are in your story? They wouldn't know, right? And neither, neither do we. So how whatever you're experiencing in the moment feeds to the, the greater story, well, you know, only time can reveal that. So there's, there's very much something to what, what Candace is, is saying there. Um, as Christians, we need, to, um, we need to affirm both God's sovereignty and his non-derived goodness. It is, it is his attribute and he holds it to the highest degree. Thus, we don't want a standard that is arbitrary nor one that exists outside or, or over and above God. So, fortunately for us, God's both supremely sovereign and good. Uh, supremely good. Uh, therefore, God's nature itself can serve as the standard of goodness and God can base his declarations of goodness on himself. So, God's nature is unchangeable and wholly good, thus 
His will is not arbitrary, and his declarations are always true. This solves the problem. So, in other words, trying to say that a little simply, more simple, um, something is good if and only if said thing is consistent with God's nature, character, and will. Mark 10, 18. Jot that down and think about that later. But, but something is good if and only if said thing is consistent with God's nature, character, and will. That's, that's how we know something is good. Um, and you guys were, were hitting all on it. Um, he is goodness. He is the benchmark. He is the source. And when compared to him, it either is or isn't. And if he's declaring it's good, it's because it's consistent with who he is. Period. Um, so that, that, that dilemma is really... Uh, it can it can seem intriguing, but you guys started peeling the, the layers back quick. I was I was proud of you. But uh, um, anyhow, something's only good if it's if it's consistent with God's nature and, and character and will. It still doesn't really answer the question of the girl in the story's boyfriend who said that if this is who God is, uh, the one who ordered the killing of entire people groups, then. That he might be that, and he might be God, but I'm just not going to subscribe to that. Guy. Could be. I, I think, though, there's something to consider as well. Louder, louder, louder. All right, so when we look at, when we look at a story like that, like, oh, how, how crazy is that? Because we've never experienced it. It's, not, it's, a, it's a non-existent thing in our culture. You go to Eastern Europe, I missed it. What's the thing that we don't experience? Oh, 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 yeah. So just the just the concept or the, the thought of that is so foreign to us because we don't experience war on our doorstep as a, as a society, as a culture. In Eastern Europe, this this oh yeah, killing people group because they were doing things that were mutilating people and killing babies and sacrificing. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we totally do that. Like that's for us contextually, it's it's such a different perspective. Yeah, so, so he's touching on, on um, uh, uh, societal or cultural presuppositions, right? We were talking about presuppositions early on and, and what presuppositions someone holds and how they filter data through and, and formulate their, their worldview. So yeah, you go to other parts of the world and they're like, well, of course that's how things work. You know, and you're like, oh, you know. You mean DEI is Oh, DEI is not... <laughs> Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, I think it's really important in all these things. And everybody calls it good, but is it? I think it's super important to think about God's attributes. Because we always thought, how could a loving God do that? Well, because he's a just God. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, you can look at other places in the Bible, and the iniquity of the Amorite isn't yet complete. So he was using the Israelites as a tool to exercise his judgment. So I, I think looking at some of his other attributes are really helpful. And it, it, you know, why why does he allow abortion? I don't know, but he's just. And then the other really important one is he doesn't change. Because it's not just God saying on a whim, oh, this is good, I like this. Or, oh, that, he doesn't oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's cool. Yeah, go with that. Right. That's he a good idea. He doesn't change what his standard of good is because he doesn't change and he's the standard of good. So I think that's keeping some of those other things in mind. Because you can be like, how would a loving God do that? How would a just, all-powerful, good, loving God deal with that situation? Mm -hmm. um, and it's just beyond our comprehension. So, because evil and suffering exist, is that actually evidence against God? 
So philosopher J.L. Mackey makes the case against God this way in his book, The, uh, the Miracle of Theism. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. All right, so can, there's, there's a hidden premise in there or, or presupposition as we were just touching on. Can anybody spot it? It's tucked away in, in Mackey's assertion there. What is justice? What is justice? Okay. Lay that out for us. Show us the math. What you're thinking there? If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil, but because there is much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, but without a good God, we wouldn't be able to define unjustifiable pointless evil. Mm-hmm. That's true. Anybody else got anything, a log they want to throw on that fire? <laughs> getting closer. We're getting closer. Where we good? I agree too. And with that, Dan said. That's what we're here to do. So it's easier for you to say, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, evil. Label it as evil when there's, when there's intent, which requires some kind of thought that leads to a volitional will that acts out. But, but again, we could apply that same standard. Is that thought consistent with the nature and character and, and, and will of God because there's there's intent to that that overarching narrative as well like Candace was was tapping into so this is a this is a thick gumbo isn't it it's, it's all kinds of you know uh, it's uh, yeah it's messy I mean evil and pain and suffering it's it's messy so those are those uh, I don't disagree with anything that that anybody said where where I was going to go is um, you know I, I think the false premise in it is that if evil appears pointless to Mackie or me or or you then it must be pointless because that's how that's our read on the situation so well then that's what it is like how often uh, I was just listening to uh, a little mini lecture um, last night, and, and uh, it was Jordan Peterson's who it was, and he was he was basically talking about responsibility, et cetera, and um, he was he was talking about your your aim, and 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 this is just a little snippet, but but he was just saying you you only see what you aim at. Right, and and he used as an example. Has anybody ever seen the thing on the internet or YouTube or whatever where they tell you, you know, uh, how many times do they pass the basketball 
you know, and you're watching and you're counting the basketball passes and then it's over and they're like, did you see the gorilla in the room? And you're like, there was a gorilla in the room? <laughs> like, and you go back and you watch it and sure enough, a gorilla just walks right through the room and you're so busy counting the... So your aim is on the thing, right? And, and that's, that's what you see. That, that's the way we're, we're wired. So if I see evil as pointless, well then I can't see anything else and consequently in my flesh, well I'm always right. And so therefore evil must be pointless. But, but is that true? Candace was, was tapping on this a second ago. I think it was Candace. Is, is that true? Why or why, or why not? Yeah, you're assuming, if you say it was pointless evil, you're assuming you know everything leading up to it, everything about it, and everything mm -hmm. after it. Mm -hmm. So you say, oh, it was you know, the hurricane, pointless evil. You just have no clue. You have no clue what was going on, how many times God was warning them or not warning them. Like, we, you just don't know. So to say pointless evil, it's just acknowledging your own. Yep. Uh, Charlie Manson would say his murders have a reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we see it as pointless, random violence. But he, he, even though he was mentally ill, he had a reason. God uses evil uh, in the world to do the work that he does also. You could take... Joe, for an example, you'd say that a lot of the things that happened to that guy were pointless evil, but yet God, being who he is, used all those circumstances not only to show the world who he is as a character, but also to restore even more fold uh, what Job had lost. All right, hold that thought and bring it right back to the surface in like three, four minutes. Whoa. I just said A plus. A plus, amen, <laughs> all, all the things. Um, so it would fit with Romans 8.28. Yeah, he doesn't miss an opportunity, uh, you know. Um, and I, you know, I actually, if y'all want to pull me aside later and, and debate it, I don't want to. I don't want to present it or, or you know teach it in class. But I, I honestly don't have a, a problem with the idea. You know, when somebody says, "Well, you know, God can't be the author of evil," and it's like, mm, why? You know, I, I'm not saying they're wrong. But I'm just saying that's a really interesting thought, and I don't. I don't know that I'm quite ready to, to cash out on that, but that's, a, that's another idea. Uh, just edit that out of your mind. All right, so just because you can't, just because you can't see or imagine a good re shh, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there isn't one. That, that's the basic idea. So in other words, if our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for, for a good and/or satisfying answer to or answers to suffering, well, then there just aren't any. Right, and that's that's kind of where we land. But uh, the 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 transcendent back to our transcendent King, and and why we spent so much time on really articulating what the Bible is, because it is that revelation from above. It is our insight to the to the broader narrative, to the bigger story of which, to Candace's point, we're just a cog in. And if you tapped us on the shoulder and asked us, "Hey, where do you fit in in this whole thing?" Man, I don't know. I just know Jesus wins, and like I'm here right now, and like here's what I'm called to do. But but He doesn't promise me happiness. Like, that concept's not really in the Bible. I, you know, I can't find a passage that really indicates God's too concerned with my happiness. And the first time somebody smacked me with that, I was mad about it. <laughs> but it's true. 
you know, his love, his, his mercy, his grace, his justice, but, but our, our, our happiness, well, you know, so for us to say that there, that there can't be any reasons, or, or for a skeptic to say, well, there simply aren't any reasons because I can't see them, well, I thought they were the one that accused us of blind faith. Right, that's blind faith of the highest order. So, I'm sorry, you were going to say something, Joey? At this point, when we're talking about complaining about all the evil in the world and why does God allow evil in the world, I think one of the greatest missing cogs in that is looking at ourselves as also being a source of bringing evil into mm -hmm. the world. Nasty, wretched sinners that we are. Yeah, and we don't say that. Why am I... Why am I bringing evil into the world? You know, that kind of idea. Wicked. Who could know it? Yeah. Um, and so, just, and it can seem so innocent. Mm -hmm. um, I knew somebody that was going to live in sin, and their reason for it was because, don't I deserve to be happy to do it? And, you know, there's things that we, we try and Justify. Yeah, my wife's good. I call her PJ. Not, it seems so, you know, yeah, we're, we're good at justifying. We're good at lying to ourselves. Yeah. You know, I, PJ, I call my wife PJ for princess justification. If you are ever, ever struggling with how to justify something, just call her. I got you. She's got you. What's her number? Yep. Yeah. She's got you, right? Um, I, I, you know, it, I read the other day, uh, somebody was floating this idea that the reason college campuses and university right, universities right now are such toxic places is because everyone will endorse whatever lie you want to tell yourself. They will endorse it, support it, encourage you in it, and that is not a healthy environment because we are so good at lying to ourselves. And, and when somebody comes alongside of you and encourages that, man, they're pulling you so far from the truth because the reality is we are wretched sinners in need of a, of a savior. But anyhow, so... And like it or not, when we sin, it has a deep impact. Even if we don't think it is, it, it impacts everybody around us, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not. Amen. And, and I, uh, when I came to understand that, it revolutionized my prayer life. You know, it... it, it, it yeah, like you got to get in there and like share the peace pipe with God. You know, like it isn't just the sin. It's, hey, what, 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 what ripples did that sin have in the lives of others? How, are, how is that thing, that word, that action, that thought, deed, whatever, how is that impacting someone else? And, and when you start down that rabbit hole, woo! Now that trivial little thing that you had thought or said or did or whatever, it's not so trivial anymore. Alvin Plantinga has an illustration that, that I think cuts to the heart of the fallacy in, in, um, in Mackey's uh, argument there. And he calls it the no -seums. And I had to look this up because I didn't know no were an actual thing. Like it was just too cute of a name. And I'm like, oh, that's cute. Did he make that up? No, these are real bugs. They're real bugs. They're like little flies or gnats or something. Um, and and they, they can bite you. They're bite is very disproportionate to their size, but you can't really see the things. And they got some technical name that, I don't know, maybe somebody in here could pronounce it. I couldn't. So uh, no see is, is just fine. But, but he calls it the no see -ums. So it goes like this. If you look in your pup tent for a St. Bernard and you don't see one, it is reasonable to assume there's no St. Bernard in your tent. But if you look in your pup tent for a no see 
an extremely small insect with a disproportionate bite relative to its size, and you don't see any, it is not reasonable to assume they aren't there. Why? Because you can't see them, right? Yeah, they're so small, you can't see them. It'd be intellectually dishonest to assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of evil, they would be accessible to our minds, that we'd be able to discern that or, or figure that out. That, that isn't, that isn't uh, intellectually honest. Consequently, that really, in academia, this problem of evil, it doesn't carry much weight anymore. Like, both sides are kind of willing to acknowledge that mm, there could be meaning in suffering that we can't see. Now, they won't go as far as saying, so that means there's a God. But, but they will concede that, which the argument kind of starts to implode on itself. All right, so, Daniel, summarize Joseph's life for us. Just hit the highlights. Joseph? Yep, you were just touching on a minute ago. Oh, you were on Job? I thought, I thought you said Joseph. Uh, oh, sorry. Joseph too. Right? Well, right. Coat of many colors, Joseph? Yes. Oh, well, he was cast aside by his own family, left to die... Well, sold off to slavery, I guess, and then uh, God used that evil in the context of what we're talking about. I guess God used all the things that happened to his own family. Did. Pretty much exactly what I got here. I said, perhaps somewhat arrogant, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, experienced bondage, misery, etc. But what was the outcome of all that? It was the key to the survival of Israel yeah. and Egypt and how much of world. Yeah, his, his, but forget all of that material stuff. His character was refined and, and strengthened by his trials, and that's what drove his leadership. And he went on to do all the things that you guys mentioned. So I was going to ask if anybody was willing to share a, a testimony or, or a story about some hardship. I think we should do that. Um, any, anything, do it as succinctly as possible. But, but here's, what I'm, here's what I'm getting at, Julie, before you share with us, uh, assuming that's why you're raising your hand. Here's what I got. Is anyone willing to share a story or testimony of a trial or hardship that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, but that you also wouldn't trade for anything because it played a vital role in your own personal development and or maturity? Well, um, most of you know that I've been married before, and my former husband and I were not able to get pregnant. And it sent a seed of bitterness in my heart where I couldn't go to Mother's Day's celebrations. Mm. I couldn't, it bothered me when people told me they were pregnant. I avoided baby showers. It just broke my heart. And for decades, I suffered with that. I resented when somebody gave me a rose on Mother's Day. And I said, well, God didn't see fit to give me a baby. When I did everything right, I ate white, I was healthy, I married a Christian, I was a virgin when I got married. I thought I did everything right, God owed me. But then, 30 years later, I get a letter from my ex-husband, and he spent 17 years in federal prison for his crimes of embezzlement. So I'm seeing the fact that I didn't have children with him as a blessing, because I didn't have to take my children to prison to see him. I wasn't linked for all my life to someone who is a felon. And I was saved from the pain and pressure of having to raise a child whose father was a felon and a liar and cheat. And then my stepdaughter gets pregnant, and I'm able to rejoice in her pregnancy because I, am, I was just free instantly. Because God gave me the blessing, which he doesn't very often, of knowing why. Praise we God. don't learn why until we step in God's presence. But he gave me the blessing so that I could rejoice in my stepdaughter's pregnancy 
and just be so excited about a new baby boy in our lives that um, that I wouldn't trade that for the world. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, and it took time, right? Time for that perspective. And had somebody tapped you on the shoulder earlier and said, hey, this is going to be a good thing. Oh, we're good. Ah, yeah, you'd have knocked them out, wouldn't you? You having six children out of wedlock with four different babies. Yeah, come here. Let me, let, me, let me tell you something. Right, 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 right. So, so pain is a diagnostic tool. I, I'm going to cut through some here for time, but pain is a diagnostic tool. It has a way of forcing us to reevaluate our decision-making and, and our perspective um, of ourselves and, and the world around us. You know, when, when you sprain your ankle, it hurts, which means your body's saying, hey, don't walk on it. Don't do that. Right? So sometimes God is using pain to, to reveal more of himself to us, and, and it takes time. Um, thank, you, thank you for sharing, Julie. So it is possible that from God's perspective, there, there can be good reasons for, for suffering. And if there's good reasons for, for some suffering that we can identify, well then I don't think it's a stretch to say there could be good reasons for all suffering. And we just don't know where we are in the story yet. But we do have some promises that we're, that we're holding on to. So the Christian perspective on suffering. Well, it's suffering is so common. From an apologetic standpoint, it has to be the most robust in terms of opportunities for entry points into a discussion about Christianity. Specifically, Jesus and, and his compassion for us and our fallen condition. Like, I don't want to say it is the entry point, because you're always looking for entry points and, and, and everybody's different, and you know, but, but we know for a fact that everybody's dealt with pain and suffering in their heart. Um, so, what about. You know, kind of more on the side of what Julie was saying. What about when Jesus doesn't show up immediately and pull us out of whatever hole we found ourselves in? In that moment. When he doesn't show up. What, what do we say to the person who, who couldn't care less if evil and suffering don't disprove God or whatever philosophical nonsense? Because they've been wounded so bad, so deep, that there is no conceivable silver lining. That kind of pain and suffering is out there. What do you say to them? What do you say? Well, John Harrison taught us said that God is requiring a faith in me that I could never fathom on my own. He's requiring a faith of her because of her uh, disability that's beyond. And so her faith is growing as a result of her suffering. And there is recovery. You, you can, you may not, but you can, like me, have an instantaneous healing. You just don't know. It may be around the corner. Amen. You have to wait your whole life to step in Jesus' presence to have it. Everybody open up. We're, we're, we're going to kind of sketch this. Um, but open up to John 11 if you want. I mean, you know, like I say, it'll, if, you, if you just want the framework as we work through it, and also help me if I get something out of order or say something wrong or, uh, you know, I'm not going to argue with the text, so just say, whoa, 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 I think you're coloring outside the lines there. But, but um, 
it's when Lazarus gets sick, right? So, so Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, gets sick. And, and Mary and Martha, well, you know, they kind of got the inside track, right? They, they know a miracle worker, work, worker and healer. So they, they reach out for some help. And in 11.5, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we know, there's, we know there's a relationship there. We know that he's fond of them. But, but hold on, though. In verse 6, we get slapped with a, you know, with a little bit of a, uh, you know, kind of a, a stunning non sequitur. Like it, so it says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So he loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus, finds out Lazarus is sick, and he goes, I'm going to chill. <laughs> now, this dude frequently healed strangers. Sometimes he did it over long distances. But this time, some of his closest friends are crying out, and he doesn't come. Why? His timing? I, I, I think... I, I think above all, it's, it's, what I want to communicate is, is it's, we, we can cry out to God and he doesn't show up. So it's, it's okay for us to acknowledge and grapple with that reality that's, that sometimes we call on Jesus and he doesn't show up. So does that mean he's not good? Does, does that mean he doesn't love us? I mean, in, in, we don't have time for everybody to share. I really want to. This needs to be a two-hour class. I think. I'm biased. But have you... Ha, <laughs> thank you. Um, just show of hands real quick. Have you ever cried out to the Lord and you just felt like you were met with silence? Where are you? Yeah, yeah right? But, but we're not alone. Je Jesus pleaded uh, with God, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But he went to the cross. Paul was tormented by the thorn in his flesh and he prayed repeatedly for God to take it away. God basically said, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. C.S. Lewis lost his wife to cancer. He said, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like? At times, belief in an omnipotent God can just add one more tear on the face of suffering. Jesus could have come when Mary and Martha called, but he didn't. And by the time he gets there, Lazarus is dead and he's been in the tomb for four days. And he's smelling. Be good and dead. Stick a fork in him. But upon his arrival, upon Jesus showing up, Mary hangs back, but Martha goes out and meets him and then she pleads, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But notice that even though there seems to be a sense of reproach in her words, at least it feels that way to me, her faith in Jesus is complete, like, like Julie was saying. She doesn't, she doesn't lose her faith. She doesn't give up hope. Her brother is, is for sure dead, yet she still believes her Lord can for sure help. She never wavers on that. So... How does Jesus respond to her? 11.23, he says, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha, she's a first century Jew, and, and this idea of a resurrection, it's not so crazy to her. So she's like, well, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 11.24. So, now this is complete conjecture on, on my behalf. Let's turn the mic off, right? But, but our humanity 
at least my humanity, can almost hear her heart crying out. But what about now, Jesus? I need your help right now. Why won't you help me now? You ever felt that way? I need you now. God is not absent. He's just not working within our understanding. God was not absent during my 30 years of pain. I didn't lose my faith because I knew that. Because I felt him. But then he didn't relieve my pain. Because he was using it for good. Yeah. Yeah. Almost every, all of us, almost every Christian has found themselves standing where Martha's at at this point in the story. So, uh, uh, on one hand, we have the ultimate promise that Jesus will one day right all the world's wrongs. But then, on the other hand, we're more like helpless children than, than like some mature philosopher. Our, our pain is real. It's, it's urgent. It's, and it's deep enough, you know, that we can refuse. We, we're not interested in some far-off hope. I'm in pain now. I remember when I had COVID. I can't even get out of bed. I can't think straight. Allie gets mad at me because I'm tossing and turning. She doesn't know I'm standing on death's doorstep. And she's like, I'm going downstairs. I'm like, go. And she was hoping you were on death. Yeah, she was probably hoping. And oh, yeah. anyway, she's like, do you need some Tylenol or something? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, how many? I'm like, four. She's like, I'm not giving you four Tylenol. I'm like, then give me a gun. You know, but like, <laughs> I'm in pain now, right now, right? So any kind of, and, and that's, that's kind of shallow. I, I probably shouldn't have played that card, but, but you know, it's sometimes that my point is there's moments in life where some crisp, tidy theological answer to life's pain, and it's not going to do. That isn't adequate, right? So... Remember, like we were saying early on, Jesus is a person to be known, not a concept to be, to be argued or theorized. He's not a theory. He's a real person that, that, that he was God in the flesh, and he empirically understands this condition that we find ourselves in. So Jesus looks this woman in her grief-filled eyes and says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives... Sorry. And believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, 11, 25, and 26 about what, what is Jesus actually saying to Martha right then? What's he really saying? He's telling her that while he understands her emotional grief, she's not lost her brother or her protector or provider or all the things he might have been to her especially at that moment in history that you know that time that society that culture he he's saying he understands all of that and yet her greatest need is not to have her brother back his great her greatest need is for him it's like a little kid who scrapes his knee he goes to his mom for comfort. She doesn't ride the wrong. Yeah. His knee still hurts. Yeah. But she comforts him through the difficulty. Yeah. And 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 you know if if uh, if you've been picked on or bullied or or you scrape your knee or whatever and you go home and and mom wipes your tears like yeah that's temporary you know when when the Bible talks about the Lord wiping away every tear like. Oh man, what that actually means. You know Jesus isn't giving her some kind of good life advice. 
It's, it's not what he's offering her. You know, here's how you should deal with life, Martha. Here's how you should think. But no, he's reminding her that he himself is life. He's life in the face of suffering. He's life in the face of death. So Martha responds in faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 27. So what happened to Martha in that space? Julie, go ahead. You, you were just touching on it. What, what happened to, to Martha in that space between Lazarus dying and Jesus calling him out of the tomb? What happened? She came to Jesus with her heartache. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rather than the temporary solution. Yeah, she, she at first she was calling 911. Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> right? But but in that in that space of time that had to play itself out, Martha came to see Jesus not as a healer or miracle worker or 911 dispatcher, but for who he really is, her very life. God's not a cosmic vending machine. Okay? You don't insert your prayers and then whatever you want falls out of the sky. That's not how it works. Is this the first uh, recorded place where somebody um, receives salvation also? Later in John? Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't be comfortable answering that on the fly. What is salvation? Is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was sent into the world. Amen. I'm not sure. I've got, I got three minutes left. And I am so committed to giving Dave the mic at noon, and it ain't gonna happen. I'm, but it won't be long after. So, I living in the past. Stop living in the past. Um, oh, I do love you. I do love you. But he loves his time. All right. So, oh, another thing I was gonna say is, when, and when what you want doesn't fall out of the out of the sky, you don't kick the vending machine and get and get mad because it ate your money, right? <laughs> Give me my prayers back then. You know, like I'm done with you. Jesus isn't a means to an end. He is the beginning. He is the end. And, and our circumstances should drive us to Jesus. It isn't that Martha's pain and suffering didn't matter. It mattered. Jesus wept. It's, it's that her pain and suffering was an entry point. So for believers, pain and suffering should be seen as an entry point for a deeper and more intimate relationship with Jesus. But for non-believers, pain and suffering can be seen as an entry point for a relationship with Jesus. So if anything, evil and suffering may be evidence for God. Evil and suffering is not unique to Christianity. Everybody's dealing with it. However, I believe it's a bigger problem for non-believers. Evolution depends on death destruction, violence, and oppression of the strong over the weak. And, and this poses a problem for the atheist worldview because these evil concepts, they're not only necessary, but they have to be considered as part of the natural order of things. This is part of nature for their worldview. So thus, the non-believer, you guys were tapping on this earlier, and it's like, well, we can just shut down class, you know. Um, the the non-believer has no basis for being outraged over any perceived injustice. You, you, somebody was saying this earlier. You, you can't... Well, I think it was James, but C.S. Lewis said it something along the lines of you, 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 can't have, you can't call something crooked unless you have a concept of what straight is. Right? So the non-believer has no basis for being outraged over, over any kind of perceived injustice. And, and, and that is the point. In order for the non-believer to impose a sense of oughtness on the world's injustice, they are by default appealing to a natural standard, a supernatural standard, I'm sorry. They, they are by default 
saying that there's goodness out there somewhere and this isn't living up to it. So that's, that's where you might want to move the conversation, depending on how much time you have and however the, the Holy Spirit is leading you. Uh, oh, it is 11.59 and I'm done. Take your words back. Take your words back. That, that clock's wrong. Don't. Oh, I got satellite time. <laughs> that clock's been here for 160 years since this church opened. That, that's no good. <laughs> we, we only see the clocks. It's 12 now. David, you want the mic? Alright, so we're going to look at our tactical takeaway. Uh, the, the suicide tactic. I just, I just, thank you, sir. I just found a scribe. She's going to write it down. Okay. No, that does not make me the Pharisee. Back off. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's out to get just what's in the If someone were to come up and say, the God of the Bible can't be true because a good God can't allow suffering, that's not them saying there's a standard of good. That's them saying the Bible defines good and your God is crossing your own mind. I don't, I, I don't, I, don't, I, I think you, I, I think you've allowed the camel too far in the tent. If you're sitting there letting them casually use the word good without grounding it in something, they have some explaining to do before you're under any obligation to respond to the question. They have to show you where they get their concept of goodness from, leaving God out of the conversation. But I, I digress. We can talk more later. Uh, and that, uh, that would be the thing I would start with. Um, do you believe in God? No. Well, then you get in what you believe. You believe in evolution. You believe in da 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 You get in what you believe. You don't want to get what you believe? Maybe you need to change your belief. And, and I, I have an answer that would change your belief that's consistent with what really is good. But right now, you're getting what you deserve. Because you believe it. That might I didn't mean to be so short. I just didn't want to call, call me and tell me whatever you want. I think you're an idiot. Here's three reasons why. We'll do all that later, but I, I wanted to give it to David. Okay. Uh, uh, Darren asked, uh, brought up a good thing uh, last week of um, how we use this time for tactics. And it's different than what you were kind of expecting. So what we want to do for this 15 minutes is 
how would, what do you suggest how we use the 15 minutes we have for the last six or seven sessions to come? How, how do you want to see this time, this 15 minutes used? So if you don't mind us uh, starting with you, Darren, since it's different than what you were kind of expect, what, what were you thinking, what were you expecting, what were you hoping for? Um, and then if everybody else can be thinking and throw your two cents in. Well, well, let's start with somebody else. No, that's okay. I can still, I can still formulate an answer or, or input. Um, I, so as, as while reading this book, especially in these, these later chapters, uh, I think it needs, it would helpful, it'd be helpful for at least the non-contradiction stuff to have that explained more fully. And I just see this with wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. It need a lot of repetition to understand the arguments and the approach and everything that's going there. It seems, um, I think the book gets more complicated the further you go, and I don't mean that in a bad way, I just mean, at least for my all Dante noodle to understand it, um, it just, it's gonna take some time. And mm -hmm. So, okay. that's where I'd like to see this time. Right, so, with that in mind, how would you use 15 minutes each week to explain the hardness of, uh, of the concepts uh, that's going to take time uh, to uh, understand what was being said in two chapters. Um, yeah, I think we can understand, we can read the material and have the concept. I think that the practical exercise, at least you're asking me, me personally, the practical, uh, either practical examples or exercise of those concepts. You, do you what is it? What is the rub, when the rubber meets the road? How does this work? Because I I pull up Kokel on YouTube and listen to his debates after reading a chapter, so I can see what he's doing. And, mm -hmm. um, and so and that that brings it to life for me more than just reading the words on the page. I, I can I can try and digest that, but I have to see it. Go ahead. Um, for. For anything that anybody's uh, thinking, if you if it's along these lines, I don't disagree with what Darren's saying at all. And and as a reminder of how this kind of unfolded, um, I was asked if I wanted to teach the class. I said yes. Bob said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "Tactics." He said, "Okay." Oh, by the way, Dave Brown has a curriculum, and I'm like, "Okay." So I get the curriculum from Dave Brown. And it's not tactics, right? And Dave Brown's the elder, and I'm like, "Okay, Bob, I'm." Middle here, and and uh, anyway, so what we're trying to do is bridge the two to where these these concepts through through reading, it's like okay, I'm absorbing them, but what you're saying is true and it stands, and therefore I, I feel like, and I've already started petitioning, that because all this other stuff that we're covering in, in terms of it's classic apologetics. So if you're going to have a class and call it apologetics and not touch that stuff, well, that's problematic, but. But at the same time, if you're going to market a class as conversational apologetics, well, there has to be some kind of foundation for what the tactics are rooted in. So it appears to me that these should be split out into two. So all of these words to say, 
if you think the, the, the main thrust of, of lectures in class is kind of, I don't know that we really need that. Like, that's fun, it's interesting to think about, but I'm not really growing from that. Tell Bob or, or somebody, hey, I, I think we should do more of this tactics. Or if you like the thrust of, of class, but what you're doing in your personal reading isn't enough, and we need to be spending more time in class role-playing and picking these arguments and tactics apart, etc., then do we keep this one class and have tactics as another kind of, you know, 101, 201, or, or what? I don't know, but whatever your thoughts are, share them with some of the decision makers. But, but, but that's what I'm pushing on right now is to split this into two classes because I don't see how you can separate the two. And I, I'm three, four weeks in, but it only took one week for me to realize I don't know how you can teach them side by side. So I very much agree that this is a stretch. I don't think it's ideal, but the fact that the church is allowing us to have an apologetics class, etc., like I'm, I'm jazzed about that. Uh, but we need to dial this in and, and, and make it good. I like the idea of role-playing stuff because um, kind of, what's your name? Darren. 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 Uh, like what Darren was saying about reading and it's like wash, rinse, repeat. Some of, the, some of the tactics he's giving us in here seem like they're kind of dialed down to the person you're talking to being like, oh, yeah, that was a good point you just had and not being totally just sold on what they believe only and they're going to attack their like pushing to attack you. Another element of it that I'm finding is I could compare to um, like being in a math class where the teacher's teaching you math that's above your level and while he's teaching it, you can understand because he's walking you through all the, all the, um, the steps in the process. And then he gives you your homework, you go home, and cry. turn your homework over and you're just totally lost. So like in a real conversation, um, I would say like with my, with my younger brother would be perfect where like he is way, way, way above me in being able to, you know, jockey and shuffle with ideas and, and even though I think what he believes is wrong and, and it could be picked apart by someone who is he's good at this, he's good. And so I think that running uh, some dialogues in here, um, dry running through some of this stuff would be valuable uh, okay. where you actually have someone that's not gonna agree with you. Mm -hmm. So let me let me ask this. Sorry, this is an excellent question. Today. Let me ask this: Is uh, I I agree with that. So my next question would be: Is it at the expense of some of the other things that we're discussing, or I don't have an opinion on that? And I think one one thing on, on Daniel's point mm -hmm. is that we would all have to feel pretty comfortable being vulnerable in those kinds of role plays. Is I would have to feel comfortable. I don't know you saying you know saying something another stupid thing out of my mouth so I think you, you have to have that trust and relationship there too and that it can be unique in a class as well so I just want to throw that out there so that's why I would rather see you two do it well I was just I would push back on that there to say I understand what you're saying and I think that's valid and legit but if we can't get ourselves into a position of opening our mouth in a safe space you ain't gonna open it up in the public square. Amen. Just as a thought. Okay, so on page 52, the beginning of chapter three, he has four different scenes. And basically he sets up and he uses those to explain how he uses the Columbo tactic. So most everybody I think read chapter three. I can't remember if that was part of the reading. But if we were to take one of those, just take scene one, this is the problem. 
And rather than going through the way he did it, take what we did, what we learned in our reading, and go, okay, is this, you know, what suicide method is this? Can we can we see where the pitfalls are? So here's the here's their question. We could go at this from different angles. Are we talking about good? Are we talking about justice? Are we talking about what question is the non-believer having? And then breaking it apart to go, okay, we could split it into small groups and just say, okay, you guys look at this, answering it from the what is good if you want to attack, attack, sorry. Your stance with the good angle, and then another group's talking about the justice angle, and looking basically all of the things that he lists. I mean, you can you can debate lots of different pieces of our faith with somebody's question, and that's part of the trouble. Like when we, like for me personally. When somebody says something, I look at their statement and I go, I don't even know how I want to address that because it's so wrong on so many levels. And to get into this one, it would touch on this, and then my mind just goes, Ooh, and I can't concisely just say, you are so wrong because of this. Um, <laughs> so breaking it apart and then coming together and talking in our different groups about how this would work. And, but just taking his four examples and just kind of working through those. So, it, I mean, 15 minutes, it's not that long, but if we did it, you know, for a I'm glad you brought that up because I had actually written down the second question, or second thing. Does anybody not have the book? Everybody has the book? I'm just saying. You, you, you don't belong in the class? <laughs> I, okay. I'll, I'll Is there anybody that did not sign in or check your name or keep going here? I'm sorry. Is anybody not on here? Or because your name wasn't on, so you never came out. Just keep going. You can't help it. It's great. Yeah. Keep, keep, keep going, David, while I'm still talking. Right. Uh, <laughs> talking to him. You can talk to everyone else. All right. Good. Good. Uh, We've got to figure out how you got into the room without permission, though. That's that's my key. No. Um, okay. Um, so everybody has the book. Okay. Uh, we already know some people don't read the chapters ahead of time. Is everybody reading for the week for this Sunday? So this past week, did you read uh, chapters 10 and 11 for today? See, because if, if people are not doing that, it becomes very difficult then to, oh, yeah. to converse with each other, to uh, interact, to um, role play and things, because if people are, are not up with the context, certain, you know what I mean? In certain, yes and no. Yes and no. It's like, I don't like the no part. <laughs> well, he, he gives concepts, and he actually does a very good job of the end of each chapter saying this is what we talked about. So if we were to look at, okay, he talks about the different methods of suicide. He gives a handful of different ones. So you can, you can read and we can summarize those really quickly so if somebody doesn't actually read the whole chapter, they can still participate because ultimately, 
conversational apologetics is what we understand about our faith. So we're having to use the Bible and what we know about Jesus, not what we know about this guy, to, to, to prove that their understanding of good and evil is not what our faith says it is. So yes, we need a read-ish, but the concepts that we're using, we, we need the Bible. Mm -hmm. So yes and no. Do you, do you agree with the yes or the no? I agree that if you know the Bible, I think our whole problem is that we're not we're afraid to be wrong, and we're if we're debating with each other in a safe place, we should especially not be afraid of being wrong. This is a place to be wrong and make mistakes and do better. Mm -hmm. So if we're afraid of debating because we'll feel foolish then here's a safe place to do it. We all know and love each other. We're all trying to get better at this. So, yeah, like, like Dustin said, if we're not willing to make mistakes here and feel foolish, I mean, look, be a fool for the Lord. Mm -hmm. There's no better place to be than have the freedom to make mistakes and say, you know, God, I can do better next time. Mm -hmm. And when you don't know the answer, uh, be free to admit it. You know what? Never thought about that before. That's a great question. Okay. Uh, can... Uh, and here's the great thing, here comes, uh, uh, remember, with gentleness and respect, um, here comes uh, the opportunity to be humble and, uh, and admit that you don't know everything. I mean, what a concept. So, can I get back to you on that? So what you're saying is, great question, I need to learn something and I'm willing to learn it, and the reason I'm sharing this with you in the first place is because I care about you and I'm showing how much I care about you. I'm going to find the answer and get back to you. You've just told them how much you think about them by willing to, to do that. The problem is most of us don't like the being exposed about being wrong or we don't know the answers. One of the things you mentioned in the book... Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, remember on that um, handout from last week on evolution um, the, the con in the room is you can't say anything about Christianity unless you have all the answers and sometimes I think we believe that and therefore we don't say anything because nobody has all the answers nobody and it's a great way to to learn and find answers when we get pushed. So yeah, it. Um and and I think that's part of what is driving me and my study time and whatever in the lectures is, you know, because and I, and I agree with most everything that Darren said, but at short of practicing it together. He does a pretty good job of laying out the concepts, but but for for me, there's this element of confidence, you know. And if and if you don't have the confidence that even though I maybe don't know everything or have all the answers, I've been exposed to enough that I know the truth is on my side. I've got that confidence. There are good answers for this stuff. We do not check our brain at the door. And I still rely on this today. I'll encounter arguments and things. I'm like, that's an old argument, but they just put that in some new slick language. 
and I don't really know how to untangle that on the fly, right? And but I have the confidence that mm, I'll figure it out. There's a way to untangle that. I may just need to regroup and then come back and have a cup of coffee and take another pass at it. But but I've got that confidence. But that confidence has come over time from from learning these other apologetic ideas. So that's that's where the tension in this class comes from in terms of where where is the weight of the time? Where is it allocated? Is it allocated to the concepts, the apologetic concepts that give us the confidence? Or is it weighted in the art of engaging in apologetics? But if somebody doesn't have the confidence, can they really, are they really willing to get out there and do the hand-to-hand -hand combat? I don't, I don't know, which is what leads me to really feel like we need a 101 and a 201, but maybe my, I'm inflating one or the other. I just don't know. Yeah, I've really enjoyed your portion of the class. It's been if you need to leave, really it's okay. Um, yeah, everybody can go. We're just but sorry. I think, you know, I think that these, that and the tactics need to be two separate classes. Two separate classes. Um, unless there's some way to alter what you're doing so that it can still be covered to some extent, but not just like to, you know, to spend less time on it. Uh, right. For me, I feel like I left out, you know, 85%. Just one, yeah, just one. Uh, instead of two classes, making them uh, obviously separate, what if, um, do you think it would be better if we made it part of the one class, put the two to, like it is now, but put it over two quarters, so half of the class is talking about the actual apologetics, what we need, and then the tactics and apply it to how, how we would in the class while we've just gone over it. And have two quarters instead of two, two classes. Do you, would that, do you think, be more helpful? That would so, pretty much solve the problem, I think. Yeah, it puts the two together. Uh, ju just to answer the question, though, of um, on uh, the last uh, session, uh, you will be asked to um, respond to how the class was, what you thought about the class, strengths, weaknesses. That is where you can then put down what, how you would, uh, how you've responded to the class and what you think it needs. So be thinking about that. We would really appreciate your input uh, for that. Yes. Well, and that's a good question. Like, I don't, you know, if it's one a core and the other's an elective, or I don't know. These are all things that we're wrestling with, and we don't have it figured out. So you guys be thinking about it, praying about it, and, and yeah, keep giving us some feedback, or certainly at the end of the course, but, you know, pass convictions on to, to Bob and them if you see them in the hallway, and uh, anyhow. Thank you. And it was a pleasure having you in class. Thank you. <laughs> Hope to see you again yeah, next week. Yeah. Hope to see you again next week. Hey, do you know anything about tactics of each other? Yeah.